Well, at any rate, 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to pick up the reading today in verse 1. Even though we began to examine this last week, I want to read verses 1 to 6 together as a unit. And we'll continue on in our study. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join with them in this same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to be together on this day, to have access to your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who illumines our hearts as we're in your word. Guide us this day. Let that work, in fact, be carried out as we come before you seeking to understand what you've said and why you've said it and recognize how it's supposed to be working out in our lives. Give us alertness of mind, Lord, as we do this, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we get into this fourth chapter. It starts off, since therefore. And we talked about that last week. You know, the typical thing is whenever you see the word therefore, find out what it's there for. You know, because that word is a linking word in the English language. And it always ties us back to some ideas that have occurred previously. My challenge to you is that every time you're in the Word of God, you ought to be thinking, therefore. What do I mean by that? I mean, no matter what portion of the Word of God that you've been studying, reading through, meditating upon, you always ought to follow it up with that phrase, therefore. Meaning, alright, so how's this supposed to work out in my life? How is this... What difference is this supposed to make in what I believe, in what I think, how I orient my life, the choices I make? Every part of the scripture is supposed to have at least an understood, therefore, as we're in it. Uh, it's why James 1.22 and forward talks about uh, being not just merely hearers of the word, but doers. Not content to simply see what it says in a mirror, but then operating on the light of it so that you don't forget what you saw because of the orientation toward obedience to it. Uh, God never wants his word to be merely head knowledge to lead to doctrine without change. My personal opinion, one of the great obstacles to the gospel are people who have doctrine without change. Because the very fact there's not change there implies to others looking onto them that it's merely intellectual. They're not looking to that to be real. And that's why God says, no, I I want you growing in knowledge, and I want you transforming into the image of Christ. I want you growing as a disciple, uh, not merely learning more. Nothing wrong with learning, but brothers and sisters... Doctrinally accurate but unchanged people are of very limited use to the kingdom of God. Very limited use. 
Now, the answer to that isn't to have people who aren't doctrinally correct. No, no. We need to be doctrinally correct. But we need to be people who hear and always think, therefore. You know, if this is what God said, what does that mean? How does that work out? How should I be living? May that always be true for us. Now, of course, in this case, the therefore, to start out the fourth chapter, links us back to all that had been going on in this whole issue of how we live out our lives and how God wants us to live out our lives as his sojourners, exiles, aliens in this world. How long, how will I continue to live in light of all of these things we've been learning throughout the book of First Peter? And the answer really comes down to just two choices, quite frankly, and they're developed here in these verses. Number one, we can choose to continue to live our lives for our own will. Or we can choose to begin to live our lives for the will of God. I mean, those are the choices. And you say, well, isn't there a third? And the answer is no, there's no third choice. It's a pretty black and white issue. Well, what's it mean that we live for our own will? Well, for some people, that might mean making a mess of their life. <laughs> but it doesn't have to. Somebody could say, well, my own will is I'm going to choose to live a fairly upright life. I want to live, I'm going to even maybe be religious. I have an ethical life. I might, even, I might even be part of a good church. I might even start to do some of the things God wants to do. But I, 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 I am calling the shots. I'm the one deciding all of that. I'm the one that's going to do what I want to do. So, really, before God, it kind of doesn't make a whole lot of difference whether what I want to do is unethical and immoral, or whether what I want to do is upright in human terms. The fact I want to do it is the problem. <laughs> that is at the heart of sin. Self-will, remember in Isaiah 53, the picture of the suffering servant, everyone went to their own way. <laughs> That's deciding what we wanted to do, living life according to what we want. Uh, living for the will of God. Who's in the driver's seat? Who's really Lord? I won't expand on that much more other than to say that's what we were looking at last time. Uh, by the way, the unsaved, by definition, choose to live for their own will. Whatever that works out to be in terms of relative moral characteristics. By definition, that's what it means. I'm unsaved, therefore I'm living for me. I'm, however I might choose to live for me can vary, but I'm living for me. I am the God of my life. And God says, listen, and he states it here, I don't want you to live any more of your life like the Gentiles, or, i.e., like the unsaved. You've already spent enough of your life doing that. Don't spend any more of it that way. It's not just a challenge to be saved. It's a challenge on how we're living. Now, of course, implicit in it is to be saved, to repent and believe in the gospel. And I'm not minimizing that reality. But understand, this portion of First Peter is primarily, essentially, focused on believers. So he's challenging believers about something here. Uh, don't live that way anymore. You've only got one life, so don't waste what's left of it. The past time, as it puts it in the ESV, suffices for doing what the world tends to do. You only got one life, don't waste it. The implication, of course, and we ended with this last week, it's possible for a redeemed person 
to kind of refuse on an ongoing basis, giving up the driver's seat in their life. Uh, it's possible, therefore, for redeemed believers to squander what's left of their life in this world. And if you want to see a picture of that, think of the beam of Christ in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that all believers have to go through. It's not the great white throne, but it's an assessment, analysis of our lives. 1 Corinthians 3 underscores for us that for some people, as they appear before the judgment seat of Christ, they're going to be saved as through fire, but they'll have nothing to show for it. I.e., they squandered any possibility of fruit. You know, everything's subjected to God's clear scrutiny at that time. So the very real possibility that I could kind of appear before the Lord empty-handed. They say, well, does that mean you're not saved? No, it means you're saved, but very regretful. Very regretful as you stand before him with nothing to show you. So God says, stop wasting your life. Stop squandering it. You've, you've already spent enough times. That time suffices for living that way. Don't do that anymore. And the way you won't is by arming yourself with Christ's way of thinking. And we talked about what that meant. The choosing to cease from sin. Grow as a disciple, in other words. Start determining to be serious about your walk. Uh, we saw it daily choosing to do the will of God, not our own will. Well, let's move on and build on that, on that foundation. As we see these verses, starting in the second part of the third verse, it says, uh, don't do what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He says, by definition, the unsaved have squandered their life in this world. That is the reality of their life. Squandered. Vanity. Meaningless. Think of the book of Ecclesiastes. All of those false paths that people can follow. The end result of every false path is nothing. Emptiness. Vanity. And it registers in everybody's head that that's the case. The book of Ecclesiastes, in my mind, makes it very plain that there's not an unbeliever out there who when they get away from having to have some sort of bravado before other people, look themselves in the mirror and say, my life's a waste. This has been vanity. This, everything I've been living for, it hadn't satisfied me. Now, God, maybe something else will satisfy me, and they go endlessly looking for something else to satisfy, because nothing does. Because God didn't design us to ever be satisfied, apart from Him, apart from our relationship with Him. The people around us in the culture, remember, we're... Sojourners, aliens in this culture, exiles. The people around us live according to a whole different set of values and priorities. I know that doesn't have to, I don't have to argue that with you. You already know that just from experience. But the God's Word says that too. Uh, they try to make sense out of their life following a very different set of things. They live, as I said earlier, they live out the book of Ecclesiastes. That's their, that's their life. If you want to make sense out of it, that's their life. They go from thing to thing to thing. And they all end up meaningless. And they know it. Worse, they ignore the greatest of the commandments, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's, that, there's the summary commandment. You say, well, I don't want to do that, but how about I do this? And God says, no. The greatest commandment. Let's, let's start there and work from there, not, not work up to it. And God makes a very statement here. He says, I don't want you to conform this way. I don't want you to live like those values. 
I don't want you to live like those priorities. Isn't that what verse 3 is saying? It says, you've already spent enough of your life that way. Uh, don't do that anymore. Romans 12.1 puts it in this sort of terminology. It says, don't be conformed to the world, meaning the culture, the people, the mindset of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17 says, don't love the world or the things in the world. Uh, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 puts it this way. Now I say this, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk like the Gentiles do, meaning the unsaved, in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Don't live that way anymore. <laughs> Don't live that way anymore. God says that's not how it's supposed to be. And yet, we wouldn't have this message in the fourth chapter of 1 Peter if believers never made that choice. The fact of the matter is, believers were making the choice to live like the Gentiles. At least in certain respects. In Romans 12, they were making the choice to be conformed rather than transformed. It's possible for them to make that choice. The underlying issue, as I say, is who calls the shots. Choosing to live like the Gentile squanders our life. Last time we talked about the fact that this isn't a one-time crisis decision on the part of somebody. It's a day-to-day decision. It's not so much an altar crisis as it is an AM crisis. What we do when we wake up each day. uh, Is it you or am I going to run it? Am I going to call the shots? Well, he identifies in here six uh, ways that the Gentile, the unsaved individual in the world, ends up squandering their lives. The very things he says, this is not what I want to see happen in your life, but could. Don't let it happen. The first of these, he says, they choose to live in sensuality. A little Greek lesson here. That word means literally to live without restraint. It was used in the Greek language to describe somebody whose conduct was outrageous. Extreme. Uh, Put again today's terminology, uh, and I think this is pretty accurate to the word. It means somebody's living in such a way to create shock value in others by their life. You know, that's their identity. Shock value. Uh, Whether they do that through their dress through their actions, through their words. Shock, shock. That's how I'm going to be. That's what sensuality means here. It's not so much talking about sexuality, although that's not out of the picture, because people can follow a sexuality that's shocking. But it's not limited to that. It has more to do with what makes my life make sense as I shock people with what I'm doing. And then every time I see the shock, I feel, yeah, another day I win, you know. They live that way. And God says, I don't want you to choose to live that way anymore. I don't know if any of you have had patterns in your life of shock orientation. But uh, everyone has stumbled in that point at some point, whether it's a life pattern or not. But God says, listen, I don't want you to live in that way. Don't don't do that. Don't do that. Well, okay, if that's off off the table now, what else? He says, well, I don't want you to live in passions. Epithumia in the Greek, meaning driven by strong urges. It, it, uh, it means giving the drives in our life free reign. Seeing that life is all about not denying the satisfaction of drives. 
So the, so the Greek mind would look at an individual that's driven by the drives, whatever they turn out to be. They could take lots of forms. They say, oh, I want to make sense out of this person's life. Oh, they're driven. They've got to satisfy this. You know, this is what they're after. Satisfying a passion. And God says, I don't want your life lived anymore as my redeemed child. Driven by trying to satisfy a passion in your life. Don't do that. Whatever form those strong passions take, it's not my way for you. He says, okay, well, that's off the table. Then what else? He says, well, uh, drunkenness is the way the ESV translates it. Choose to no longer live in drunkenness. Literally, the Greek word is an interesting word. It means overflowing with wine. (laughs) But it's not just about alcohol, you see. It's it's description of an individual who dulls their senses through an artificial means, whether that is alcohol, whether it's drugs. The essential part of the idea of the Greek language here is that it describes an individual who says, the way I'm going to get through life, the way I'm going to live life, is I'm going to be driven by anesthetizing myself. That's how I'll do it. Life's too miserable. Life's too unhappy. Life's too much of a struggle, too depressing. So what am I going to do? I'm going to anesthetize myself. Day by day, week by week, I'm going to anesthetize myself to those hurts, to those responsibilities. So it really doesn't matter what option they've taken to do that. If you're trying to say, what is God taking off the table? It's anesthetizing yourself. Anesthetizing yourself. So that you don't feel what actually you should be feeling is a natural consequence of the choices of life you're making or the circumstances you find yourself in. He says, don't do that. I say, well, Lord, you're taking a lot off the table. <laughs> what else? Uh, if I got to do those things, then what else is a Gentile way that you don't want me to follow? And he says, well, the next one, he says, I don't want you living in orgies. Komos in the Greek. Uh, this word, by the way, gets very misunderstood in the English because we have an idea in our mind when we use the English word orgy and almost always there's this sexual excess thing all tied to it. But that's not what the word literally means. It means merrymaking in orientation to amusement. Now that can carry with it sexuality kinds of things, but it doesn't have to. Uh, the Greek mind, the Greek language kamos, means living primarily for fun. Living primarily for entertainment. One of the Greek scholars says, if you want to get a handle on this word, this is describing the person who's amused to death. Amused to death. Addicted to entertainment. Because it's the only way they get through. My life is so miserable. Life is so terrible. I live from amusement to amusement. And then I survive between amusements. And God says, that's the way many people in the world are going to be. I don't want you that way. That's not an option that I want you following. I don't want you addicted to entertainment. Does that mean I can never be entertained? No, but I I can be entertained, and God gives us opportunities for that. But not to live for the entertainment. By the way, the word amuse in English comes from uh, two Greek words. And and ah, and muse, muse means to think, reflect. Ah means without. 
Amusement literally means to stop your mind. It's no mistake, by the way, that much that goes under amusement in our culture is mind-stopping. They don't want you to think. They want you to escape thinking, live in some fantasy of you know, other kind of world. Amusement. Oh, Lord, you're taking a lot off the, off the plate here. So what else? What else don't you want us living for? He says, well, I don't want you to choose to live with drinking parties. Now, a lot of words here in the English, but it's just one word in the Greek, potos. It means living to excess. It was describing an individual who, whether it was food, whether it was drink, or anything in which intemperance could come into the picture. It describes the intemperate person. Grabbing for all the gusto. <laughs> you want to talk about it that way. That's what it says. And God says now people are in the natural world are driven. Some are driven very much that way. They just live. <laughs> they live that way. They gorge themselves on the food, on the drink. They gorge themselves on the banqueting, other intemperance. And they, they encourage other people to do it too. You know, we want everybody doing that. By the way, that's not a description of North Coast Christian Fellowship fellowship dinners. All right, that's, that's not gorging. Uh, and I hope you don't live for those. You live for the fellowship found within them, right? So, but at any rate, getting back, that's not what he's saying here. He says, listen, don't do this. Don't be that kind of person. Don't define the good life as the excess. Don't define it that way. The world around you does. Don't define it that way. Oh. Well, I, I push come to shove. I think I could avoid those. I think I could avoid those five, Lord. You know, you know sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. Yeah, it takes out some of the options, but I think I can navigate. I think I can navigate. And God says, well, I don't want you living in lawless idolatry. Because that's what the world does. Lawless idolatry is defined this way. False worship because you make up the rules for it. Now, this particular part of the Greek language is not talking about believing in Baal instead of God. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about an orientation toward religiosity. A religion in which you make up the rules. Having a religion or spirituality that you've defined rather than God has defined. Believers can work hard to not fall prey of the first five and constantly fall on their face with number six because they define what discipleship is. They define what kind of demands I'll let the Lord make on my life. They define what it means to no longer live for my will, but for the will of God. And brothers and sisters, that it makes you guilty of the sixth thing. Anytime that's the characteristic of your life. A privatized spirituality where you, not God, define the terms. You know, frequently... I'll talk with people, and I've shared that with you in the past, not only in the university, but other places. And, and they'll say, well, I don't see God that way when I've been talking to them about some of the Word of God. And they'll say, well, I'm sorry to hear of your idolatry. 
But this is what God has revealed true about himself. But at the same time, I've, I've encountered other people who, when I'm sharing with them what God has said it's a way to live as a believer, they said, well, you know, maybe, but I think God's pleased with my life. And my response to, and they're not doing what God has said, all right? Uh, or they're, at, at the very least, calling the shots, pretty much, even if they're living relatively moral, upright life. And my response to them is this. Uh, so what you're telling me is that what God has to say about following him doesn't really mean anything. Uh, it's what you sincerely think is okay, is what you're actually basing your life around. And I said, well, I don't like it when you put it that way. And I said, well, it's better you see it for what it is. Don't confuse the issue with all kinds of false spirituality bravado. That's really what it comes down to. A privatized spirituality. By the way, the Gentiles around us are all for privatized spirituality. No matter where we are in the world today, very, there's no threat to the world with you being privatized in your faith. There's a threat to the world when you're not privatized, and when you say there's an authority that really links to everybody, it's not your sense of what's right or wrong, it's what God has revealed. That the world hates. But they're very contented with you being privatized. I wish I could go back and list the number of times presidents that we've had have said, well, I don't have any problem with faith as long as it's privatized. You know, we don't want it entering the public arena. We don't want it influencing, influencing laws. But we don't want to interfere with your privatized faith. And I'm saying, well, I don't know anything about privatized faith here. This is, I have to act private. I have to act personally on it. But there's nothing privatized about this. This is this isn't me. It's God. Well, another issue. I'll avoid it. Now, here's the point. If you choose not to be like the Gentiles driven by the things that are there. It creates an inevitable conflict with the world. I mean, it's inescapable. Uh, this is a note of realism here in this part of First Peter, I think, needs to be given to us. It says, listen, the unsaved simply can't understand why you don't live that way. Now, they don't all live according to all six, but they all live according to one of those things. And they don't understand you. It's like, what do you mean you don't fit into one of these categories or some similar type of category? I just don't know what... I don't understand you. I can understand everybody else because I can see them fitting into one of those things. And even if I disagree with what they're doing, at least I understand it. But I don't understand you. What's going on? You, you're just this big puzzle. In fact, it says here in verse 4, they're surprised. Word surprised... Zenizo in the Greek means to be startled, bewildered. You know, it's like, what? You know, I, I look at you, I see what you're doing. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. I can't figure you out. Why are you different? You don't fit the categories. And you make me feel uncomfortable. You make me feel confused. In fact, when I'm around you, I feel guilty. And that's the worst thing you can do to anybody in this world, make them feel guilty, remember? You know, that's, that's always the comeback anytime you try to talk about God's morality or something. Well, you're making me feel guilty. No, what you're doing is making you feel guilty, not by talking about it. But nonetheless, 
don't make people feel guilty. By the way, nobody's saved without feeling guilty. Because it's guilt over sin that leads us to repentance and faith. Which is why the churches that say, well, we don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable if they come here, might just as well say, we don't want anybody saved when they come here either. Nobody's going to be saved unless they feel uncomfortable. Now, we can make them feel uncomfortable in very bad ways. But they still need to see the truth. You're not going to get anywhere without the truth. So you stir guilt feelings in them. Romans 1 says, They know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to the ones who practice it with them. You're fine, even if you're different than me, but you're fine as long as you're in one of these categories. But uh, if you're out of it, I don't know. I don't know. You frustrate them with your refusal to indulge in what the ESV translates as a flood of debauchery. Why aren't you doing this? And by the way, the flood of debauchery is defined by those six orientations of life. Not just sexual immorality, but all of those things. He says this is the flood of debauchery that characterizes the world. They're all under the flood. Not just the Noahic flood. They're under the flood. That's what characterizes the culture. By the way, the, the word translated debauchery here, the same Greek word is translated in Luke chapter 15, verse 13, talking about the prodigal son. It says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and he squandered his property with reckless living. Reckless living is what that's about. That's, that's this word uh, in the Greek. Meaning, remember in 1 Peter 4, we're talking about squandering your life. That's what he says. You want to squander your life? Live like the Gentile. God said, I don't want you to squander your life. And what they do, because they're frustrated with you, because they can't make sense out of you, and because of all things, you make them feel guilty even when you've not pointed something out. Because if you don't join with them, that makes them feel guilty. Everybody had that experience? They maligned you. Greek word, blasphemo. That word can be used in two settings. It, when it's used about God, it means to speak slander about God to deny truths that God has revealed about himself. But at times the word blasphemo is used in relationship to people, not just God. So what would it mean that I blaspheme people? Because that's what he's saying here. Or they blaspheme, malign. It means with people to abuse through slander, to make an effort to destroy the character and credibility of someone. That's what blasphemo means when it's used with people. Then you can see why it's, some of that application would be true with God, because you're you're trying to destroy the character of God as he reveals himself by presenting a false picture of who God is and so forth. But among people, that's what it means. That explains a lot about our experience in this world. You make the natural person feel very uncertain or less certain about their place on the curve. Remember, all of them are convinced God's marking on the curve. You know, if I can just score high enough, I'm saved. When you don't join with them in the flood of debauchery then they think, this is going to affect the curve. This is going to affect the curve. And if you don't do these things, I feel less certain about my place on this curve. So the more I malign you, the better I feel about myself. The more I present false pictures of who you are, the more I think, well, the curve's improving. You know, They really are dirty dogs after all, aren't they, these people? And liars and whatever, uh, you know, always living 
you know, trying to look goody-goody on the outside and really being cesspools on the inside. And we all know that's who they are. And, and all of a sudden, click, click, click. Hey, I think I've got a C. No. You know, I was down in the F range here. I'm up near a C. Let's do this a little bit more. And more maligning comes. Spends a lot. Explains a lot. Now, one option for the believer is to say, well, if that's the case, how, how can I minimize that? Stop living a godly life. That's how you minimize it. Second Timothy 3 tells us all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. There's no way to avoid it unless you say, well, maybe the godly life... Uh, how about I have a more privatized sort of thing? How about, how about I make up some of the rules on what will please God so that I can look at myself in the mirror and say, I think God's pleased with me because I'm not as bad as that person. Or I'm, I'm kind of trying to live a little bit more upright and all of that. I mean, there's a way to avoid the conflict. Don't take it. Don't take it. God says, if you fall into that trap, you might just as well assume you've squandered your life as long as you do that. Your life will be a big zero. Nothing to show for it. Nothing to contribute to the kingdom. Nothing that will be able to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant from the Lord. You squandered it. Don't do that. Don't do it. Say, well, this stuff makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Makes me feel comfortable, too. (laughs) But God makes the choices simple, doesn't he? I mean, not simple to carry out. Simple to make. Apart from Christ, we're going to fall flat on our face. But it's not that the choice is so complicated. How's he going to be Lord or not? Well, it's a pretty straightforward choice. How does it work out if he's going to be Lord? Well, that we can. That's the reason we have a whole lot more here talking about that. But the choice is pretty straight, isn't it? Just like the gospel's pretty straight, pretty black and white. You know, There's not nuances in it. Yeah, here's. Here's death, here's life. Here's what you face apart from what Christ did. Here's what now you could face if you rest in what Christ did for you. That's pretty straightforward stuff. Pretty straightforward. Sorry I couldn't deal with you today with a more ambiguous part of the word. Uh, you know, speak about it in a few more generalities and maybe you could go away feeling better than I feel at the current moment. <laughs> All these things. Uh, but that's just the way it is. And... Thank you, Lord, for caring enough about us to say it the way it is. And, uh, and you gave me First Peter 4 because you knew I needed to see myself in the mirror and be reminded of what I saw, but you don't force me to do it. I can go away and forget what I saw. Don't let me forget. Let your prayer today say, Lord, don't let me forget this. Help me to be who you've called me to be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time you've given us this day. A little bit shorter time to be in your word, but Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have spoken clearly, and in your mercy you've made available to us what you've said, and through your grace and mercy you've made the Holy Spirit's illumining ministry possible in each of our lives. So take your truth, work it out in each of us, that we might understand within our lives what it is that the application is in this day, so that, therefore, 
can be characteristic of our lives. We'll give you thanks as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.